Hospitality friends, and welcome to our second episode of While We Were Waiting, a podcast developed to highlight the funniest and most uplifting and sometimes downright crazy stories from inside the restaurant. So today, we're going to share some stories about celebrities and restaurants with my dear friend, Buffy Summers. I am your host, Martha Madison, and... I'm AJ Gilbert. That's my lifetime co-host, husband, father of my baby, and business partner. So we're really happy to have you here, and we have a great show planned for you today. Martha, what did you do today in quarantine? Oh, today in quarantine, I did a lot of laundry um, and dishes, and I went for a run, and then I took Charlie for a run and homeschooled, and that's about it. <laughs> what that's did you a do? Busy day. <laughs> I uh, I did. I worked out upstairs at home. Um, I did some work to get ready for recording this podcast. I fed Charlie lunch, and I'm going to take her for a bike ride. And I took the dog to daycare. Still open. Yeah. I guess, well, I do think that it is an essential business to have doggy daycare for puppies because if I had to deal with that dog here and my six-year-old, I mean, no, I don't know if I could do it. I would start drinking too early in the day. Yeah. And <laughs> there are people who have to go to work and that have pets. So I, I, I'm hoping that that's the calculation and they're not just breaking the law. But if you work in a hospital or something and you have a pet, Somebody yeah. needs to look after the pet. So, no, I uh, read the directive. There's a there's a thing in there. They're allowed to stay, the doggy daycares are allowed to stay open. They are oh, an right? essential business. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, there we go. So the doggy daycare is. is not going to close. So we don't have to kill the dog. We, <laughs> <laughs> we love. You're going to have Peta on us in a second. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I I don't know that I would want to come back as somebody's second dog. You know, our, our the first dog <laughs> we had was our surrogate child and got so much attention. Yes, Henry. We actually named a restaurant after him, Henry's Hat in LA. And the new dog, you know, we get along. He's a good dog. <laughs> I, I, it's it's just a different relationship. I mean, we have a kid now and, and uh, you know, I... Yeah, I think I I was it's been hard for me to bond with Winston because he was su he's such a hard puppy. I wasn't really sure he was going to make the cut. Yeah. But now he he's has a, he has a criminal background. He's a little bit of a criminal dog. He's a he had a mean streak and we, yeah. we I think we've worked through it. And now he's super sweet and I'm ready to bond with the dog just not while in, we're in quarantine. I just I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. The vet did say he had the smallest testicles she'd ever seen. You can't see them, actually. They're all mm. the way up in his like abdomen. So we literally have a mean-ass dog with no balls. Yeah. So speaking of, um, have you seen the news about the president today? <laughs> so yesterday I went to Trader Joe's, which for those that have been is remarkable. And they're doing a really good job. I, I really was impressed. I think it's a really well-run company. And they had blue tape where you could stand. And I felt we can't get groceries delivered anymore because the places are too busy. And mm -hmm. I felt pretty safe. But uh, driving back, I was listening to the news and uh, President Trump was talking about small restaurants and, you know, that 11% uh, of restaurants may not reopen. And his comment was, they'll reopen. It may be different owners, but they'll reopen. And I thought, well, first of all, <sighs> that is the perspective of a landlord, right? 
you know. Right. Uh, but so um, stupid because he's actually in the hospitality industry. He's yeah, such a uh, – I, I, I was surprised because I think his businesses are suffering as well. And, you know, I, I get, you know, his perspective is much more macro and he's worried about jobs coming back or whatever he's worried about. But I, I, I did, it struck me that this is sort of the perspective that I think restaurants have to battle in the best of times, which is yes. people think of restaurants as, is there a restaurant for me? And whereas other businesses, they might think, well, that restaurant or that business employs this number of people or that business does this for the community or whatever. But when you when you think of restaurants and one goes out of business, you think, well, another one's going to open. So I have another place to eat. And I think the president was sharing that perspective. And I, it ignores the cost to the individuals that started that business, not, not just financial, but emotional and all the things that right. people will go through mm-hmm. when this business recycles and turns into something else. And these are not businesses that are coming to the end of their leases. These are businesses that are in the you know, that are, these are places where people could be sued by their landlords and boy, all the, some who might've just opened even, or some that, you know, restaurant groups and restaurateurs who have entire life works, you know, uh, on the line right now with, with, you know, 10 of their own independently run restaurants and, and they may lose everything after all of that, but it's okay because someone else will do it. Right. No, so, it doesn't work that way. Like people imagine if no matter what industry you're in, someone came in and said, thanks for your 30 years of, of whatever it is you do. Um, why don't you just run along and I'm going to keep all your money and everything you've ever done. And we're just going to give it to someone else for to do. I mean, it's like, fuck yes. you, man. And, and also, <laughs> you know, the, the fact that the federal government is bailing out the airlines, why isn't that the exact same thing? Why do we need American Airlines? What has that ever done for us? Why can't there be a new airline called U.S.? Well, I guess there wasn't U.S. Airlines. Why can't there be a new airline called you know North American Airlines and they can fly the same planes and hire the same pilots? Right. Uh, you know, what, I'm not worried just about bring it. Back but, Virgin Airlines because they were really the <laughs> they were the best. <laughs> yeah, but my my point is 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 what what is the point of rescuing any business from the top up? Right. You know, it's it's because it helps the top down, and there are also people at the top that might need help as well. Right. So I, especially I don't, I, in the restaurant industry, people have this idea in their head that a thriving, busy restaurant that's you know doing three hundred covers a night must be loaded, and how dare they not pay their employees for two weeks? And I, I think I, I'm happy that there's finally a national discussion about the fact right. that that's not how it is. Restaurant, a healthy restaurant might make you know five, ten percent from the bottom. Them, but it is a cash flow business. If you have a bad week, you're going to struggle the next week to pay all your vendors. And that is the restaurant industry. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, something that's coming out of this that's interesting to watch is to see like Cheesecake Factory yesterday told all of their landlords, we're not paying rent. And right. uh, Cheesecake Factory is not exactly a small business. It's a publicly mm-hmm. traded, uh, very successful restaurant company. And it just shows the condition that restaurants are in. And, and, you know, I don't think it's time to get too into this yet. But, you know, we've tried to solve a lot of social problems that happen with working people by mandating that businesses provide more benefits uh, uh, so that the people can have a better standard of living. Ignoring the fact that there might be other ways to provide these benefits to people. You, you know, why does a small restaurant need to be responsible for somebody's sick leave when 
the government might be able to create a, poly- a program right. to do it for, and that it's transportable and people can take it to their other jobs. I, I know that people bristle against that. Why don't, why doesn't every business pay for, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have sick leave. I'm just saying when there we has really to be look, a way to actually pay for it because if you, pay for it because if you when can't the, pay for it as a small restaurant or a small business, the effect will actually be the opposite of the goal, which is right. you are going to lay everyone off and the restaurant's going to close. Right. And we've seen this happen time and time again, especially in places like San Francisco. And you know, at the very least, what we're seeing is finally a national platform for the restaurant industry to say oh, so you do have $2 trillion to help us. So when this is over, why don't we talk about some long-term fixes that can help us help our employees in the long term? Right. And and to change the, the, you know, and it's probably too much for this crisis to produce, but the structure of employment, it doesn't have to be the way it is. Mm-hmm. Is is it antiquated? Is there another way to provide healthcare uh, sick leave, vacation pay, and all the benefits and a living that, wage and a living that we wage. all deserve, oh, but in a out, way that isn't going to damage the business completely. Right, outside, outside of simply mandating that employers pay it in businesses that you know that the margins get so low that they can't survive, you know, a week of of being closed. So, you know, for those of you that are listening, I ask that you know this is probably something we could talk about for hours, and uh, I, I you <laughs> we'll know, save all, it for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, all, all that I would say is, is there another way to you know, we if we all can agree that people need a certain amount of money to live, if we all can agree that people need healthcare, if we all can agree that people need time off when they're sick, which is going to be so important as we come out of this pandemic crisis. Maybe we can discuss how best to deliver those services to people so that that businesses, small businesses can, and now some large businesses can prosper and grow and create more opportunities. And is it necessary to create everything as a mandate? And to know that the reason that governments mandate businesses to pay for this is because it is absolutely the easiest way for them to deliver this to people. Because if they do it from a governmental level, then they have to put skin into it and they have to tax people and they have to... Uh, make themselves unpopular, it's so much easier just to ask business to pay for it. Yes. And I would also like to tag this whole conversation with not everyone who owns a business is a greedy asshole. Like sometimes people just like us own businesses and we work in them every day and we roll up our sleeves and bus tables every day. And when the business loses, we all lose. It's, you know, so. But don't, don't follow Keith McNally on Instagram. Why? Well, he, oh. he keeps showing pictures of his house, his, his house his in the Hamptons, his castles, right? His house on Martha's Vineyard, his house in the English countryside, his house in London, and his house in Manhattan. This yeah. is the owner of Balthazar and Pastis and stuff. So, right, but I'm okay with that because I love Balthazar. <laughs> I, I'm I'm very happy for his he success. Was, yes, but not not everybody has five houses like Keith McNally. Yeah. Most restaurant owners only have two or three houses. Yeah. That's true. Uh, we we don't have it. We're we're renting. <laughs> we don't have any houses. <laughs> we have we have five less than Keith McNally. Yeah. Hey, so today we're going to talk about restaurants and celebrities. We're going to hear some stories about restaurants and celebrities. Martha, why do restaurants care about celebrities? Why is there a connection between celebrity and restaurants? What's it all about? 
What's it all about? I mean, that's a pretty simple question, I think. Uh, celebrities bring eyeballs. They bring butts in the seats, right? So if a really cool celebrity has been at your restaurant and you can market that or call TMZ or put it in People Magazine, that's that equals more people coming to your restaurant. I mean, that yeah. seems pretty simple to me. <laughs> I, 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 I think there are three. I think that that's the pragmatic reason. And when, you know, when we had restaurants in Los Angeles, our publicists would give us uh, a form to fill out and we would document celebrity sightings when they would come in, what they would eat, who they were with, if they did anything notable and, you know, and you'd send them in and, and maybe we'll put on Instagram. You know, I have like uh, from early days of Luna Park LA, Us Weekly, like all, you know, David Schwimmer and all the celebrities that had kind of been in. I remember when Balthazar opened in New York and New York Magazine, they had a diagram. They had the floor map from the dining room, table one, table two, or whatever. And mm-hmm. they showed all the different tables. Yoko Ono sat here. Um, right. you know, I don't know who that was. Probably uh, Harvey Weinstein was probably on it. Uh, you know, it was oh all God. the big New York celebrities <laughs> at the time. But yeah, I mean, you know, celebrities in a restaurant bring press, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I also think that, you know, everybody that is in a restaurant the night that, Barack Obama eats there will tell that story forever, forever, right? <laughs> right. So we yes. were at Pastis in New York and, or the time we were at Luna Park LA and the cast of Beverly Hills 90210 were all there together, right? Right. So these, these are stories that people will tell uh, forever. So that's, you know, another form of marketing, you know, obviously <clears throat> there's a emotional piece as well, which is, I yes. think that you know, restaurant people like to be around celebrities. It's well, a perfect. Because it makes them feel like I worked in restaurants with a bunch of struggling actors like myself trying to pay my bills. And, you know, when the cast of friends comes in and sits in your restaurant while you're there, it's like this moment where you are like, oh, we're the same. We're all in the exact same place at the exact same time. I now have value. Right. <laughs> In right. some very weird neurotic way, that's how it feels in the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I've noticed that there are struggling actors in restaurants that get really upset when they have to wait or serve <laughs> successful <laughs> actors because it reminds them, you know, somebody might have just come from shooting an episode of ER uh-huh. and they're feeling like they're making it in Hollywood and then they come in, they have to change into their bartending clothes and then they wait on Kiefer Sutherland or something and they're like upset about it because they would rather be acting against Kiefer Sutherland. After our last restaurant in LA closed, and this is a different story for a different day, but I ended up going to bartend at a new restaurant in West Hollywood. And this is post days of our lives. This is post a very public, uh, you know, restaurant failure. I am in a tie behind a bar bartending at 40 years old and like the one of the women from another show, I think it was General Hospital, came in and sat at the bar, and I and she knew me. Obviously, we all know each other, and I had to wait on her, and that yeah. was a very different experience. That how, was how, how um, many, I wanted to run away. I was it was very hard for me. How many of your actor friends have asked us for jobs over the years? All of them. Yeah, it's yeah. come up more than once. That's all, for sure. All of them, and we've employed quite a few. Um, but well, I, I'm, I'm talking about working actors, like actors that have been on contract TV shows. I mean, yes, I guess it comes up because as an actor, you're dealing with long periods of unemployment in between gigs, and you have to work. 
but we, we had we had a hostess at Luna Park LA who had uh, acted against Adam Sandler. Well, she was in Jerry Maguire. Like everyone knew her from Jerry Maguire, and she was a hostess. Like I, I, you see it in LA a lot. It's a very different thing to experience it, and it's a very very different thing to experience it at forty years old after yeah. having owned and operated my own restaurants. Like and you were a it, trooper. You chose to go out and do that, and you got moving. And once you got moving, you kept moving, right? Yes, I think that's why I did it. Is I knew at that moment I needed to get back to something I really enjoyed, which is bartending. I do like working behind the bar. I still like working behind the bar. Um, but, uh, I, yes, it was a baby step towards getting myself out of the fetal position and back into the world of the living. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it was weird. I would have fans from days of our lives come sit at the bar and want to take pictures with me while I was making their margaritas. Like it was a trip. Yeah. (laughs) a trip. Having celebrities inside the restaurant is fun for everyone. I think it puts everyone on the top of their game, right? So uh, yeah. My first my first job was like scooping ice cream in Mendocino, California, but my first, you know, restaurant job was shortly after. And I had a choice. I, there was a job at the local hardware store and uh, I wanted to work at a restaurant because I wanted to make tips. And I ended up working at uh, my cousin, Neil, got me a job at Alice's Restaurant on the Malibu Pier. And this is in the like 86, 87. I was finishing high school. Oh, don't date yourself, honey. (laughs) I'll cut that part out. So um, uh, Alice's Restaurant on the Malibu Pier, uh, summertime in Malibu, I'm 16, 17 years old. You know, there can't be a better place to work. Uh, You know, the people on the pier, girls in bikinis on the beach. And I think my first weekend there, I was a huge U2 fan. And um, the whole band U2 came in for brunch and they were shooting uh, The Streets Have No Names in downtown Los Angeles. So they'd done like the surprise concert on the rooftop Mm -hmm. of LA. And it was a big deal that they had done this. And he was like, why couldn't, you know, they've told us, of course, it would have been a mob scene. They didn't tell anybody. And then they came in the next day. And that same day, I think David Letterman came in and, uh, you know, what a different environment than weighing nails in a hardware store. And, you know, the (laughs) restaurant business is so much more fun than other service businesses. I mean, you know, and the celebrity part is part of it. There's alcohol, there's pretty people. It's just a fun environment. But, you know, I think that the celebrity element is something that you get to see and do that most people never get to experience. I mean, somebody might see, you know, uh, Oprah's chef at the airport or something, but when you work in a restaurant, especially in a coastal city, it's, you know, it's day in and day out. You're around Mm -hmm. all these people that are world renowned and it's, it's very exciting. It is. It makes going to work a little more bearable (laughs) when you're a struggling actress. So today's theme is obviously celebrities in the restaurant, and we have a really great guest coming on. Welcome to my friend, Buffy. All right. Well, I want to introduce my friend and colleague to the show. For the purposes of this episode, we're calling her Buffy. Buffy, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Buffy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I love having uh, my restaurant friends on the show, and especially because you're also a recruiter, and you are also someone who is a former operator, and you also used to be a chef. So you have this trifecta of perspective on everything that's happening right now, and I'd love to um, 
first hear what your take is on everything. You know, what are you hearing from your people? What What have you seen over the last three or four weeks in in the business? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, from you know my current occupation as a recruiter, I mean, we we saw the news coming out, and I think one of my first clients to really kind of say, hey, we're really concerned and we're slowing about this was in New York. Um, didn't know how quickly it would escalate, but I think over the course of two weeks, you know, sh- sh- slowly but surely, everyone really put a freeze on hiring. Um, and as we've come to see, everyone has really entered triage mode and is really trying to adapt and, and, and try to take care of their employees, first and foremost, which has been really touching for me to see, and also just trying to adapt their their business models to try to survive during these tough times. I mean, I think that there's a lot of uncertainty right now with um, how long these sort of, you know, restrictions on social gatherings will be, um, you know, and we've seen some really cool models come out with takeout businesses or restaurants turning their walk-ins into bodegas, um, which have been really popular. Um, uh, I'm sure we all have a lot of friends who are still Mm -hmm. um, operating in restaurants and catering and um, hotels. And, you know, one of my best friends actually is is a general manager. She used to be my boss, actually. Um, And she's here at a restaurant that had to close. She had to lay off a staff of about 80 people um, overnight, which was terrible, heartbreaking. I mean, she was just devastated. Um, They have turned their entire menu into... Uh, a takeout model. They've kept on their management staff only and a couple of chefs. Um, And they've also turned their sort of deli counterpart into a marketplace. And actually they've done well enough to hire back four employees. So um, yeah, Yeah, small victories, but you know, that was really exciting. Um, I think it's important to add that, you know, they went from probably 90 employees to like six and, you know, there's all this attention to takeout right now, which is, which is great. But I I do feel that it's important to note that it's never going to replace the revenue of a full service restaurant, not even close. I mean, these are people that are just trying to get rid of their inventories and see what they can do to pass the time, but this isn't a new business model that would be sustainable. But I think that seeing how adaptable everybody is to, to what's happening right now is such a great thing because it's something I've always known about people in the restaurant business. And I I feel like the whole world is finally getting to see just how scrappy and gritty and adaptable these people can be. And I think it's a, that is a a beautiful thing that we're seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe, maybe uh, from an emotional perspective, but you know, what, what I think is troubling is on the news (laughs) and when they're saying that, uh, you know, restaurant business are switching to takeout this might give people some comfort. Oh, the restaurants are okay. They don't need help or whatever. And it's just not a business. It is people selling off inventory and perhaps trying to sustain some payroll for a few key employees or something. But this is not going to pivot the restaurant business into a new industry. This is just some little fluke we're seeing, some highly adaptable people making the most of a terrible situation. Well, I think what they're trying to do is keep their restaurants open so that they have something to come back to. And I think that that's really admirable. I agree with what you're saying. I think that it it is giving this false sense of security to, to 
the general public that these restaurants are going to be fine and most of them are not going to be fine. Uh, And it's a terrible reality that we're all facing. But it does highlight one of the strongest assets of restaurant people across the globe, that they are trying to make something out of nothing. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Because And and the truth is is that restaurants are in crisis every day. And uh, the fact that restaurants are able to uh, deal with a crisis shouldn't surprise anybody because – a crisis right. is your is your local team going to the World Series and business dropping twenty percent. A crisis is half your staff not showing up during Coachella. I mean, restaurateurs can deal with with crisis. That That's is true. true. What would you tell your clients, uh, people looking for a job? Uh, what would you say uh, in terms of if you're home, you've been laid off, or if you were in the middle of a job search, which is probably the worst place to be right now? What 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 do you think? I mean, you know, I've I've really kept up interviewing on my end, although it hasn't been for specific positions. There are a lot of candidates out there who are looking right now, um, unfortunately. Um, but it's been a great opportunity to really sort of meet new candidates. Um, they've been able to network with me so that if there's a new opportunity that comes up, when and if this is over hopefully soon, um, you know, that's always just kind of lining up all the ducks in a row. I always say it's a great idea to work on your resume if you have some downtime, um, pick up a new skill set. Um, I have a friend who created a fabulous wine course, for example, um, that's an online wine course uh, consulted by a lot of master sommeliers. Um, and she's sort of like gearing that towards a lot of management people or front of house managers who have downtime and aren't necessarily certified, for example. So, you know, for me, I, great idea. Yeah, I, great always, idea. I always try to kind of look at this and say, hey, we can't do this. We don't have a job, but how can we strengthen our skill set so that we can go back into the market stronger than ever before? Um, so I just I try to keep positive, you know, and I think that it's, it's helpful for everyone to try to do the same. And I think it's great advice because the way to, you know, to start something, you never know where it's going to go. And if everybody's down and they don't have work and there's no way to look for work, that can really be a a bad spiral. And if there's anything that can be started, uh, you never know where it's going to wind up. Like a podcast, for instance. Like a podcast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, great, great people and great minds are home right now, really sort of thinking about mm-hmm. things. And I think sometimes the best things are really born out of necessity, right? So, you know, right. I've been really amazed to see how creative different people in our industry have really become with, you know, what we can do. Um, and I'm sure that some of those models will be here to stay. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. We can make celebrities out of all of us, which <laughs> is such enough uh, an easy segue into our theme today about celebrity clientele. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I know. I, I, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in, in New York and Los Angeles for most of my restaurant career. So dealing with a celebrity on the daily is uh, pretty common. Um, and I've got some great stories, but I know you do too, being based in LA and I'm dying to hear. Sure. Do you have any, any really cool celebrity stories? There is one I would mention that kind of comes to mind because it was during a peak moment in my career and I was already really feeling the pressure. And then, of course, uh, enter celebrity and I'm like, how do I deal with this situation in this restaurant? Oh, my restaurant? God, tell me. Um, so, you know, actually, I was working with a recruiter myself um, as an operator at the time. Um, and this was for a front of house management position for um, a two-star Michelin restaurant. 
um, in, in Los Angeles. I had never worked at a Michelin star restaurant before. I mean, in the kitchen I had, but not front of house. Um, I was very nervous, you know, um, <laughs> there was a lot of pressure. I, I showed up, I was in a crisp suit. Um, you know, the introduction to the general manager at the time was very much so like, you, yes. You're just starting at this job. Is that the time? No. Frame? So I'm sorry. I should have clarified that. So I had had maybe two interviews at that point. Um, and this was my, my stage um, mm-hmm. or my trail. So it was really my final interview. They want to see you in person. They want to see you in action on the floor. I arrive. The general manager is very, very tough. <laughs> she sits me down and is like, here's, here's a floor plan, memorize all the table numbers. And then we're just going to set you off for three hours, do everything you can for the guests, make as many connections as possible. We want to just make sure that you're fearless. And she just left me there. <laughs> um, so I was very, very nervous already. The shift starts walking around the floor, you know, kissing babies, shaking hands. <laughs> you know, I was, I was very much allowed to say I'm not employed here, but you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, at the restaurant for the evening as an experience. Um, right. and so I, I walk You're out. You're so diplomatic. <laughs> I walk out onto, um, the patio uh, of the restaurant, which is very much the VIP section. I mean, every night those tables are, this regular goes here. I mean, it's a puzzle every night uh, for the meter to really figure out who sits where. And, you know, it's a total political play. And I walk out. Yeah, which, and, which table you have defines your right, status in the right. community. Why am I not at this table? Oh, I see so-and-so is sitting there. Are they more important than me? I mean, it's this yes. whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> they are. That's right. That's, that's true. That's what I mean. Or they got there first. Yeah, so I I walk out onto the patio and I see uh, Donald Sterling um, is sitting there. And Donald Sterling was the, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers for okay. many, many years until recently. And this was right around the time that there was a huge scandal going on. So he um, lost the team in a, in a lawsuit. Um, correct. <laughs> and uh, he was very defiant. I, I the, the league wanted to take it away and he fought very hard. He's a He's a... That scrappy billionaire kind of eccentric guy. Very eccentric. Um, and he was there with his girlfriend, I believe, um, who was very, very friendly with me from the get go. And, you know, we started talking and she, I sort she of, was older than him, the girlfriend. Oh no, she was much younger. I was ah. going to say no way. Much, much, much younger. Yeah. <laughs> and she kind of looks at me and she's like, Oh, how long have you been working here? And I was like, well, you know, to, to be very candid, I, I don't work here. I do hope to maybe one day work here. You know, I'm here working with the management staff for the evening. And she's like, Oh, it's so great. Have you had the signature dish? Um, you know, and the signature dish that they have is sort of, you can, you can pick it up. There's little pieces to it and they're kind of bite size. She's offering um, you a taste off of her table. <laughs> so she holds it up <laughs> and she goes, have you had this? And I said, no, I'm sure I'll get to try it later. And she sho- shoves it in my face and says, I insist that you eat this. As recruiters, if, if somebody said, should we eat off of a guest table during our stage? What would you say? I would probably say no. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I would say, say whatever, no. whatever it takes to get the job. <laughs> sure, no, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's really about the context of what's the restaurant, who is the person. I mean, what is their philosophy on 
how friendly you can be with guests. I mean, that that's a huge range, right? So I think right. all of that not, comes Not something play. common in a Michelin restaurant where the not staff is sure like, yeah. <laughs> Yes, not common when you're in a suit and in that sort of establishment with that sort of refined cuisine um, to be eating out of a guest's hand, let alone a stranger <laughs> never met. So I politely declined and I, she's like, no, I really insist. I really need you to do this for me. And she just wouldn't take no for an answer. So mm-hmm. I, I took this from her hand and I ate it. But, you know, immediately afterwards, the AGM like pulls me into the <laughs> wine room and is like, excuse me, and he's French and he's very, very serious. And he's like, did you just eat the... XYZ from Donald Sterling's girlfriend's hand. And I was like, I did. And he was like, well, can you tell me more about why you did that? And I said, look, I understand that's not something I would ever do. And that's not in my decorum ever, but she insisted. And I know that this is an important guest for you. So at the end of the day, if she's happy, then I think I've done my job. (laughs) You know? Oh my God. Well, I would have hired you after saying that too. They, they hired me. They offered me the job. So yeah, you know. I think I I think it was your your persuading that it was the right thing to do that got you the job. It also sort of touches on what one of my favorite former employers said, which was, you know, uh, we always live in the gray in restaurants. Um, there's yeah. nothing that's black and white. AJ told me he was has a great story and, and won't tell me what it is. So I'm dying to know <laughs> which well, I, which I, celebrity story you're going to tell me. So I was managing uh, restaurants in San Francisco for Spectrum Foods and was getting uh, bored with the position and decided to go back to school and move to London, England to do a year of school in London. And I got a job uh, at a restaurant called the Oxo Tower, uh, which is still there. Well, it was until two weeks ago anyway, who knows now. But uh, Oxo Tower is at the top of a relatively high-rise building looking over the Thames River. Beautiful restaurant. They had a bistro on one side and then a real kind of fine dining Michelin aspirational restaurant where I was working as a maitre d' on the other. Lots of celebrities came in. There were the TV production stuff for London. All the TV studios were in that part of town. So it was really common for people to do kind of the evening shows or the morning shows, and they would come in for lunch or dinner. One night, Montel Williams came in. And, oh, I love this story. Yeah. <laughs> and he was with like a whole crew of people. And this was like at the height of his powers. His show was really popular in the United States. My job was very rudimentary. I, I would stand at the host podium and there was a, a, a usually a woman who was responsible for doing coat check. And then there was a woman who would take people to their tables. And my job was simply to dispatch. I would just look at what table was available and I would send the person over. And it was the same kind of drill. There was the places for people like Montel Williams and there was the places for everybody else. And, you know, <laughs> it was very important to sort the kind of VIP people into the right section and stuff. And that was, that was like my, my job was, was to decide where everybody would sit based on their, uh, their stature, uh, their stature. Right. Mm-hmm. So Montel Williams came in, they had dinner and on their way out, he was standing by the host podium and he was talking to what I assume was a publicist, a British woman. And uh, she was asking him why he had bought this watch and he was wearing this watch and it was like a, a you know, a very expensive watch. And he said he had paid 40,000 pounds for it uh, that day at um, uh, 
how much it. is that in, in dollars? I don't know. Well, how much was it then? It was probably like 80. And now it's very, oh. not as much, but it's probably like $80,000. Okay. And she was asking why he had bought this watch. And he said that um, he went into Harrods and uh, he was looking at watches and the person that was helping him was racist <laughs> and was dismissing him in the watches that he was looking at. So he picked the most expensive watch there wow. and, and bought it to make a point. And the British woman who was with him did not understand his logic. And uh, I was started smiling at the story because I thought it was funny. And uh, he said hello and he heard my accent. And he said, oh, you're American. You understand my story. You understand why I bought the watch. And I said, I think so. I, I said, uh, you, and, he, and he was asking me to clarify for the publicist. He said, why, why did I do it? And he said, I said, you wanted to show the person that was selling watches not to make assumptions that he was going to make his biggest sale from somebody that he was dismissing uh, because he had prejudged the person. And he said, that's right. <clears throat> and we chatted for a minute about why he was in London. He was doing some media or something like that. <clears throat> and then as he was getting ready to go, we had a little tin. So my income there, I think I got, I, I, you know, they, I got paychecks, but most of the the money that I made was from coat check that people would put like pound coins in this little tin. It sounded like a slot machine in Vegas, but ting, ting, and uh, and at the end of the night, <clears throat> we would all kind of divide the people that worked at the front door. We would divide that up, and it was a lot. It would be like fifty pounds a night. It's like a hundred dollars, and it was it was essentially the money I made for working there. And Montel Williams, I don't know why he had all these coins. And I don't think he had any idea how much they were worth, but he just started taking out pound coins and dropping them into the tin. And <laughs> cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. And when he left, we counted it, and he had left 200 pounds in, in oh coins. In, <laughs> I think that there was like a 50-pound note as well. But he had just stuffed all this money in. And, uh, you know, uh -huh. I think he was thanking me for validating his uh, conversation with the British or public. Or he was just... He thought I was make, racist. Yes. Sure you, <laughs> you weren't laughing at him, but with his story. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I, so. So, like I said, I always uh, worked in either New York or LA. And so I always had <clears throat> celebrities in. It was like a very normal thing to have celebrities, you know, come through the restaurants. And But there was, there was this one night I was working at a place called Jimmy's Downtown on 51st and 1st in New York. And <clears throat> I looked around the dining room. I mean, we were packed. We were quite a hot spot back then. And I looked around the dining room and I realized that the entire restaurant was completely fully loaded with celebrities, like like big celebrities. We had um, the Prince of Morocco and his entire entourage on this 12 top. And then right next to him was another 12 top and it was Stevie Wonder and his entire band and entourage. And then I looked over at uh, what we called table A1. That was our VIP table. And it was Jay-Z and Beyonce. And this was before they got married, but it, they were still like a big deal back then. And then all of a sudden, it's like I could almost feel this magnetic energy. And I look over and Michael Jordan is walking in. I I almost fell out. Like he had this cigar hanging out of his mouth and he looked over at me. I'm behind the bar and he like gives me that head nod that's like, hey girl, what's up? You know? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, it's Michael 
Jordan. <laughs> and and then and like I'm working the service bar and and the way that the dining room was designed was it was a hundred foot long bar that you would walk through to get to this circular dining room. And the service bar was the only bartender that was facing the dining room. So like you're kind of on display as the service bartender. And so I'm like, feel like I'm on stage in front of all these celebrities. And Martha Stewart was there and she came over to the service bar and said, you know, can I, can you make me a caparena? And I was like, sure. She's like, was that, was that Martha yeah, Stewart? But, but put it, okay. put it in a, a wine glass. So it looks like water. And I was like, you got it, Martha. And I'm thinking, this is so weird. And so I'm double shaking cocktails to totally show off for everybody. And, you know, Martha Stewart's like three feet from me watching me make these drinks. And I'm double shaking, double shaking. And then <laughs> I totally hit my head with <laughs> one of the shakers. Like I almost knocked myself out. And of course, I'm trying to rebound and recover because Martha Stewart's like literally rolling her eyes at me because <laughs> I almost knocked myself out with a shaker. And I pour her a drink you know, I- and I walk away and I realize that I have this giant goose egg on my <laughs> forehead. <laughs> And I was so embarrassed and I had to go finish my shift. So I'm like bartending with this giant bruise on my face. Well, flash forward to like five years later when I was then on Days of Our Lives and I was going to the daytime Emmys and I was walking the red carpet and I feel like, you know, I've arrived. I've like made it. I'm I'm at the Codex Center on the red carpet in my beautiful dress and all these people on the bleachers start going, Martha, Martha. And I was like, oh, fans, people know my name. And then I looked over my shoulder and it was Martha Stewart was right behind me. (laughs) And I was like, another slam in the head from Martha Stewart. Thank you, Buffy, for coming on the show. It was so fun having you on and thanks for sharing your stories. And um, we'll be talking to you again real soon. Well, thank you for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. I hope you enjoyed our second episode of our podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Just uh, make sure you leave us a little review and tell us what you think. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Waiting Podcast and Twitter at Waiting underscore podcast. And you can check out all of the information I just spewed at you by going to our website, whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. If you have a story from the restaurant industry that you want to share, we want to hear it. Just send us an email, stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com, and we will get back to you right away. Until we meet again, grab a cookbook, kick up your feet, have a beer, but make sure you took a shower. Bye.